Welcome to the Joys of Binge Reading, the show for anyone who ever got to the end of a great book and wanted to read the next instalment. We interview successful series authors and recommend the best in mystery, suspense, historical and romance series, so you'll never be without a book you can't put down. You'll find this episode's show notes, a free ebook, and lots more information at thejoysofbingereading.com. And now, here's our show. Evie Dunmore's debut romance, Bringing Down the Duke, was named as one of the best romances of the year by Publishers Weekly, a remarkable win for a first-time novelist, and even more surprising because English is Evie's second language. And now she continues her good run with a new book in the series, A Rogue of One's Own. Hi there, I'm your host, Jenny Wheeler, and in this binge reading episode, Evie talks about why she was attracted to an extraordinary group of women, the first women students at Oxford University, for her suffragist era historical romance. She tells why she swapped a career in international business for romance, it's a great talk. But before we get to Evie, just a reminder, you'll find a full transcript of our conversation with links to Evie's website and books on our website, thejoysofbingereading.com. Go there and be sure to subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss future episodes. And while you're there, leave us a comment. We love to hear from you. But now, here's Evie. Hello there, Evie, and welcome to the show. It's great to have you with us. Good morning. Thank you for having me. Or at least it's morning where I am right now. (laughs) That's right. So, just to set the geographic setting, you're in Germany and it's first thing in the morning and I'm in New Zealand, what, New Zealand and Auckland in New Zealand, one day into lockdown for the second time, Yeah, which is, we're still all being affected by the pandemic in one way or another, I'm afraid. So, yeah. So, Eva, you've embarked on a historical romance series called the League of Extraordinary Women, which is set in the late 19th century, the 1880s, and it deals with the suffragist movement, the women's movement of those years. And I use the word suffragist because it is subtly different from suffragette, isn't it? Can you explain what the difference is and why it's important? Yeah, certainly. So... The the one thing to know is probably that the term suffragist precedes the term suffragette. Uh, At least in Britain, the term suffragette wasn't really used until 1906, which was when the Daily Mail created the term basically as an insult for uh, Emmeline Pankhurst's more radical arm of the suffrage movement because those ladies were causing a lot of trouble. And the suffragists who followed Pankhurst just reclaimed the term. They said, oh, okay, suffragette's actually quite nice. And it sets apart from the suffragists. And the difference between the two is that the suffragists were using peaceful methods to, you know, work for change until the vote was granted in 1918 in Britain and the suffragettes were literally setting fire to things. <laughs> so, so, so the suffragettes are the more radical women's rights activists that you associate with, you know, the, the imprisonment and the force feeding and the firebombing and the suffragists under Millicent Fawcett were more focused on petitioning, lobby work, you know, writing articles. But certainly both groups wanted the vote for women. So, yeah. 
Yeah, but the suffragists were working through the mechanisms that society accepted, whereas the suffragettes were willing to do extreme things like throw themselves under horses at races and things like that. Yeah, exactly. I mean, at the time, in 1880, the suffragists were already considered quite a radical group, right? But nearly 30 years later, uh, nothing much had happened uh, that they wanted to happen. So things were getting more heated in certain corners in the movement. Yeah. Yeah, they got a bit, ran out of patience. Uh Uh-huh. And would it be fair to say that these romances are about feminists falling in love? There is a funny kind of dislocation between the idea of these women who are so intent on independence also finding romance. But I wonder if the word feminist is misleading because it's more a term that's appropriate for our own time rather than the 1870s, 80s. Would that be so? Well, yeah, I'm I'm getting to that in a moment, but first, uh, I find it really interesting what what you said in the first part of your um, question, which is that it's slightly incongruent like being an independent woman and finding romance, because (laughs) I do not see that as mutually exclusive necessarily, and I think one of the reasons why I wrote the books is to show exactly that. So personally, I think, you know, it's you know, there's there's always a certain dependency within a relationship, but but maybe that that goes both ways. You know, it's, it's not that as an independent woman, I don't have feelings or I don't want romance in my life. It just becomes harder to negotiate. So that space of like, how difficult is it to negotiate a relationship when you have uh, goals and your own life, so to say? It's I find that very interesting, and I think that's one of the one of the ideas that drive my writing. But to get to the second part of your question, I think I think it's fair enough to call them feminists because historians today would agree that these women were the founding mothers of first wave feminism. That's that's on the record. And if you look at the basic definition of feminism, which is that you know it's the belief that women and men should have equal social, political and economic rights. That, then I'd say it's it's fair enough to call my characters feminists falling in love because, you know, of course, how you interpret that, you know, how you interpret the ways of achieving this equality and what it means for women's agency, people have always disagreed on. Like you, will, you will find it difficult to find a period in time where all feminists and non-feminists agreed on what it means to be a feminist, right? Even back then, I mean, we just talked about the difference between the suffragettes and the suffragists. Even they had their disagreements on methods and what it means. But if you know the girls in my stories, they certainly want this equality. And and it's, it's actually funny how not new that concept of feminism is. It's, it's really deeply rooted in exactly that time period, if not earlier. And, and I'd like to give a, a really good example here through uh, John Stuart Mill. He was a, a huge English philosopher and economist. Still, you know, his work is still considered really important today for that time period. And when he married Harriet Taylor in 1851, he was very upset by the marriage laws of the time. He said, they amounted to women being legally enslaved. And, and he was so annoyed that this marriage conferred all power over Harriet to him that, that he made a public declaration against it. He, he said something like, well, because I have no means of legally divesting myself of these odious powers, I feel it is my duty to put it on record 
a formal protest against these existing laws of marriage and that I will never ever use these powers that I will hold because I don't want them. And he was really not alone with these beliefs in 1851. Um, he had a lot of supporters and it's just that he and the women who agreed with him were up against a formidable opposition. So maybe they got drowned out over time. But certainly the idea of equality, equal rights between men and women is not new. It just has been a very long struggle. Yes. The heroine of the, your most recent book, the one we're focusing on, is a rogue of one's own, Lady yes. Lucy. And she's a perfect example of the kind of thing we're talking about because she's been disowned by her family for her political activities because they consider she's bringing disgrace on the family name and she's also making it very difficult for herself to make a good marriage and that's really the only point for a woman of her status to marry well and also she resolves that she's not going to marry anyway until the marriage property act is amended just for that very reason because the act as it was framed virtually put women totally under the thumb of their husbands in every respect um, so for her to marry would in that environment at that time have meant that she had to put aside virtually declare that she wasn't interested in having any property rights, any legal rights, that she was quite willing to be totally under her husband's thumb like a slave, wasn't it? Well, yeah, I mean, the term slave is very loaded, of course. I mean, John Stuart Mill, yeah, course, yeah. <laughs> yeah. John Stuart Mill yeah. used the term back then, so, so I used it now. But, but it is very true that she would have been pretty much rightless because her legal persona just would cease to exist. Like the, it, it wasn't actually the Married Women's Property Act that did that. The whole concept of coverture, of like subsuming a woman's married woman's legal persona and her husband is, comes from British common law. And to amend that, they created the Married Women's Property Act, but it just didn't really go very far in protecting married women's rights. So that's why uh, the, the suffragists were focusing on amending that, making sure that the act actually represented married women's rights so that they could, you know, write their own will and decide who could inherit whatever property maybe they had inherited before they went into the marriage. They could keep their property, that they could hire a lawyer by themselves, <laughs> you know, all these things. They could open bank accounts in their own name. All these issues needed to be addressed and to, to keep married women legal person. And that's why the suffragists focused on, on amending this property act. It was also that voting rights, like voting in national election was tied to property rights back in the day for men too. So the reason the suffragists focused on this property act or why Lady Lucy and my story wants to amend it is because should they get the vote for women, but women lose their property rights and, and their legal rights upon marriage, then, well, it's great that women can now vote, but married women wouldn't have been able to vote. They would have been excluded by this yes. property qualification, right? So that was basically the groundwork they were doing there. While another group was working on, how do you say, um, decoupling <laughs> the property qualifications from voting rights. So that, that this work was yes. going on in parallel, basically. Yeah. You marked your stories in very good historical fact. And the basis for the League of Extraordinary Women is founded in the fact that nine women were admitted to Oxford University 
the first woman ever accepted at Oxford in the 1870s. Now, St Margaret's Hall that took those women as students, they didn't approve or support of the idea of women's rights. The women were all tutored separately from the men <laughs> and they weren't conferred full degrees. But nevertheless, it was quite historic that they even were allowed to sit at the desks and learn. And you take this group of young women as a starting point. I was just curious, how far do the women in your books mirror the actual women who were the first student? Well, I think Annabelle mirrors them pretty well, actually. And that, that's something I found out halfway through the novel, because that's when I became serious about writing it. So I thought, okay, so you've been spending all this time writing, and you know, it's probably time now that I'm I decided I'm going to finish it and make it a proper book. It's, it's, it's going to be time to do the proper research as well. So I went to Oxford. I went to Lady Margaret Hall and got access to the archives to learn more about these women because two or three years ago, their online presence was fairly underdeveloped. It was quite difficult finding, finding a lot of information about who exactly they were, how old they were, what their backgrounds had been. So I felt it was necessary to go into the archives and Lady Margaret Hall had a lot of good information on them and I was really glad to find out that Annabelle happened to match the profile of, of these early women students at Oxford. I mean, at 25, she would have been too old to realistically enroll, but the majority of students for a long time came from clergy households like Annabelle, like had a vicar as a father or, you know, man of the church or from academic households around Oxford. So, so that matched pretty well. Hattie, who's also a student, she would have been an outlier because she's the daughter of a very wealthy banking family, right? But in reality, the first daughter yes. of an industrialist to attend Lady Margaret Hall was Gertrude Bell, another famous woman. And, and that was only several years later. Yeah. So Annabelle is actually the heroine of the first book, isn't she, Bringing Down the yes. Duke, that focuses on her story. And that, your debut novel, novel, was also picked as one of the best romances of the year by Publishers Weekly, which is a great achievement for a debut novel or for any novel, but particularly for a debut one. And you had a little secret, which we haven't discussed yet, that you were writing in... English as your second language. What was the, did you find that a challenge or why did you decide to choose to write it in English? Well, to be honest, that wasn't really a decision. The story just happened to come to me in English. And my written English is uh, better than my spoken English, to be honest. So <laughs> it's easier for me to write in English and, and to speak. Why it happened, I don't know. I have always loved the English language. So I read most books. Um, that are written in English originally in in English and and I suppose that is how it happened there's a really strong connection for me between reading and writing and, and also I lived yes. in England uh, I, li I lived in Britain for four years and I lived in the United States so I've always had English on my mind so that's how it happened yes mm. Um, you mentioned that you lived in England you were actually a student at Oxford yourself weren't yes, you? Yes I was did that give you an advantage in terms of access to those research materials you've mentioned? I think that anyone with a good reason would be able to 
access the archives of Lady Margaret Hall. You know, you just have to get in touch with the archivist and present present your reasons. <laughs> As it yes. certainly was an advantage uh, for me to get into the Bodleian Library, which is the, the largest library uh, in Oxford. As an alumna, I have access to the Bodleian for life, and I can, you know, just renew my library card every four years and. I can go in, <laughs> which is wonderful, and uh, certainly less complicated than if you have to go through the whole process as an outsider, I think. But in general, I would think that you could access those materials if you wanted to, even without having been a student, yeah. Yes. Now, your own studies were quite a long way away from this turn you took towards writing romance. Tell us what your first or second or third degree was in. I'm not quite sure how many there were and why you changed paths to writing romance. So I studied uh, international politics and economics and, and I did a master's degree in, in, in diplomacy. So yeah, it is <laughs> it's quite a long way away from romance, as you say. Also did not start out as an author. I went to work in business after I graduated for, for many years. Incidentally, I started reading romance during my long commutes, you know, to, to clients and back and after long work days to unwind. So, but, but really, I started writing my first stories when I was six years old. Uh, that's when it started. And I was reading a lot at age two. And so in a way, I think I'm, you know, actually coming back to myself now. <laughs> you know, maybe maybe I'm, I'm growing into what I was always meant to do at this point. Yes, yes. Um, a Rogue of One's Own, there's some very interesting material buried in there amongst the romance. Letters that women wrote about their support of the idea of women's rights and talking about how their personal lives were affected now, I understand that was a survey that you yourself organised. Can you tell us a bit about how that material came about? It, it's really quite touching the way that it is brought into the story. And her male counterpart, Lord Ballantyne, is, is very much touched by these personal accounts. It helps him to understand what women are thinking and feeling. Yeah, thank you. Well, I made up the survey, uh, like the numbers, and to my knowledge, there wasn't ever a survey that large that women actually published in a national newspaper. So I took some artistic license there. But what I did do is I did read real letters from women at the time about the topic of, you know, being rightless in marriage, domestic violence, being owned. There's lots of diary entries and letters out there that you can, you can look into because exchanging big ideas with writing buddies was a big deal in the 19th century, right? It's happened a lot, especially yeah. since you couldn't yes. really talk about these things openly with your girlfriends. You, you didn't, in the 19th century, you didn't just sit down with your girlfriends and have a chat about this guy or that or what happened in your marriage. It was a very, very private matter. And so I, I had this idea of creating the survey based on the material that I had read. But again, I, you know, probably exaggerated the numbers and also um, the that it would have been sent straight to a suffragist for publication. So I took some artistic license there, but I very much liked the idea. And it's it's not it's not implausible, you know, it's it's something that could have happened. 
And I think you also mentioned that these letters came, a lot of them were from middle class or even upper class women, and they helped to banish the idea that it was only the lower classes who were interested in women's rights because they expressed things that were happening in that world of the middle and upper classes that the ruling classes didn't want to even acknowledge were going on. Yes, yes, that is true. I mean, of course, letters exchanged by upper classes and middle classes are the letters that survive. Usually, you know, it's it's not as yes. easy to find written documentation from the working classes, maybe because they, you know, shared their stories differently or because nobody paid great care to preserve what they what they produced. But what we do have is evidence of middle-class women being very aware of what's going on and being vocal about it in their letters. And the idea that the working classes or even the, 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 the non-working classes, the poor, that they have a drinking problem and a casual prostitution problem and a, a domestic violence problem, yeah, that, that was something that was, you know, more talked about in newspaper articles, for example. But you wouldn't hear about Lord so-and-so slapping his lady around in the newspapers. Not really, <laughs> you know, so <laughs> to put it, to put it in that way, yeah. That's absolutely right, mm -hmm. yes. What, was there anything that particularly surprised you that you uncovered in your research? For Rogue or for bringing down the Duke or just in general? Well, either of them, yes. Yeah, I think, I think what fascinated or surprised me was the absolute like the stark contrast between what I read in those private letters and diary entries um, from the women that, that I found and the public narrative around family, you know, and how like the, the family home in Victorian England was this peaceful oasis, this refuge from the big bad world. Uh, it was where all the good things happened and where you raised the noble next generation. So it was a really sacred space and the, it very much, it was very much contingent on women performing certain roles and functions. And so all the poets that you, uh, the poetry you read from the time, and, 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 and you know the narratives and literature were all like focused on this um, angel of the house, the woman being the angel in the house and, and making everything lovely for everyone. And in reading these personal accounts where women are really writing about, I'm losing my faith in God over how horrible husbands are, and you know, it was like, okay, there's obviously a huge mismatch between what women are supposed to perform and believe and how they really feel. And that space in between, I thought, was super interesting which is pretty much what inspired yes. Lucy's story. Yes, yes. Certainly in her case, her family, I mean, her mother has not had a very happy time in her marriage at all, but is absolutely committed to keeping that all secret and presenting a good face to the world, isn't she? Yeah, I agree. She, she does. Mm. And I think that would not have been unusual for the time. I think that would have been the more usual way of doing it, yeah. I think right through until the 19, and certainly I can speak for New Zealand, right through to the 1950s. It was probably only in the 1960s and 70s that women started to talk more openly about what was really going on in their lives. Yeah, I think in Germany it would have been the same, like the, the revolution, so to say, of the late 60s, 70s was when these things were put on the table more openly, definitely here too. Mm, mm, yeah. 
mentioning Germany, have your books been published in Germany? Is there any interest in, in this topic in Germany? Um, yes. So the publisher has bought the rights to the whole series and the first translation of Bring Down the Dukes, I think it's scheduled for late spring, early summer 2021. So that's exciting. <laughs> that's great. Yeah. So moving away a little from the actual books and talking about your wider career, mm. I always like to ask, is there one thing you've done more than any other that you would credit with your writing success? With my writing success? Mm. Well, to be honest, I'm still very new at this. I had a very unusual case of trying my first book and landing a publishing deal right away, which is very unusual. So I have only written three books at this point. Only one of them is published at this point. Second one is this, you know, launching on September 1st. And I think what I, what I can say after this short period of time is that two things are important. Um, number one, take, take your work seriously, take your writing seriously, and make space for it accordingly. You know, it's very easy to put your writing and your need to write onto the back burner um, because there's, of course, other th important things competing for your attention and for your time. Uh, but if you really want to write and finish a book, give yourself, you know, the permission to take it seriously, shut the door, make the time, understand that it's going to be hard. You need to sacrifice for it. Um, some people won't understand. But if it's your calling and if the story really wants to be written, then probably the right thing to go ahead and to stick with it even when it's hard and don't be discouraged by it being hard it's part of the process something I didn't really know before I thought wow I'm writing I'm living my dream why is it not easy why is it not fun half the time I, I think it's normal <laughs> you know push past that yeah. it's funny I've, I've been doing this podcast now for two coming up two years and it's funny how even the most experienced authors will admit that pr practically every book they come upon a dark hole or a place where they have this crisis of confidence about whether they're going to be able to finish it, whether it's any good. Almost every book, even for people who are on, you know, number 19 and 20. Yeah. I find that quite encouraging, actually. <laughs> That's uh it's a gloomy prospect yeah. on the one hand, right? Um, but on the other hand, you know, you, you get less, maybe less discouraged by by it being that way. You just need to at some point decide that you're going to do it anyway. Yes, it's just part of the process. That's right. Now, we mentioned the pandemic. I'm not sure what's happening in Germany with, with COVID at the moment, but are you being affected in the launch of the second book by the way things are in the world at the moment. A Rogue of One's Own, as you've mentioned, is coming out in just a couple of weeks. Would you be normally doing book tours and things like that? And can you still do that? I wouldn't have been doing any book tours in Germany because, well, I do have German readers, but not on the numbers that it would merit a book tour. So most of my readers are in the United States, Canada, uh, Australia, Britain. And I don't think I would have been doing... Uh, book touring there but it certainly affected firstly the mood <laughs> everyone's mood you know about how to promote yes. books it's like you don't really it doesn't really feel it doesn't really feel amazing to promote like love stories and romances during such difficult times you know even though 
I did see that romance novels gave a lot of people a lot of comfort during the lockdowns and, and during COVID. You know, a lot of people took refuge in that world. But it's dragging on yeah. for a really long time now. Nobody really knows what's going to happen to the economy. Certainly, we don't know if bookstores are going to shut down again in a couple of weeks' time in, in the United States mm. or anywhere. So there's mm. lots of uncertainty and anxiety involved with that. And yeah, it, I'm sure there's better conditions to launch any product or to do anything the good thing is yeah. people have reacted very quickly they're shifting a lot of things online there's lots of virtual author chats going on now and you know people are still reading books so it's still possible to meet readers and to have a chat like we have now yes that's lovely now we call this series the joys of binge reading because we do know that in this digital age People like to binge read, particularly if digital books, they can get them at any hour of the day or night. So if they're reading through a series and they finish a book at midnight, if they choose can choose to buy the next one immediately and keep going, do you like to binge read? And if so, what sorts of authors do you normally like to binge read? Yeah, I sometimes do go on to reading binges. <laughs> I, think, I think the last one where I binge read and really just neglected everything else was when I discovered Cresley Cole's Immortal After Dark series. <laughs> it's, you know, it's not historical. It's, it's like a more paranormal romance. And I, I think I read the whole backlist in like four days and it didn't come up for air in between. So that was a bit crazy, but it was a lot of fun. Yeah, same with, yeah, sometimes I will just you know, it's, it's easy to binge read entertaining literature, like sometimes young YA fantasy. I recently discovered Lee Bardugo uh, <laughs> and read her Grishaver's uh, books. I read a lot of them. Yes. Yeah. But also I'm reading books by fellow authors, especially the ones that are up and coming. So at the moment I'm reading a contemporary by Denise Williams, How to Fail at Flirting, which is a lot of fun so far. I'm also really looking forward to Diana Quincy's Her Night with the Duke coming out soon. It's, it's, this book is really interesting for me because it features a heroine who's from the, the Middle East. Uh, so so I, like, I like that representation in the book because, you know, I'm also, I'm half Lebanese. So <laughs> it, it's good for me to see that, that character represented uh, in, in romance more. So, yeah. Yeah. How did you get started in reading romance? Yeah, so I think I mentioned earlier that I, I had very long commutes when I was working full-time as a business consultant, and it was just very comforting to read romance novels. So that's when I started to read them a lot. But originally I started because I, I keep telling the story, but I was a guest with relatives in the United States when I was 17, and and something dropped and I went to pick it up under my bed and found a brown paper bag and thought, ooh, that feels like a book inside. And I, I pulled it out and it was Joanna Lindsay's Hearts of Flame. And I thought, this looks really interesting. <laughs> <laughs> and I had never found, like I had never come across a book like that before. So I read it and read it a couple of times more and thought, really interesting. And I, <laughs> I did not go on to buy any books like that because I was you know I was a bit embarrassed buying them so I took, took a couple of years yeah. until I came across Sarah McLean's Love by Number series and I loved those books I loved them so much and 
you know, that's what I then returned to when I was working a lot and I never looked back. Yeah, you kind of overcame the cringe factor of being an serious academic who read romance. Oh, well, you know, sometimes you need, sometimes you need, um, like, I think especially when life gets tough or challenging, it's great to have a a refuge that that doesn't offer more, how do you say, uncertainty about, is there going to be a happy end or not? You know, when, when life is challenging and work is tough, I really like just reaching for that happy end and reading it and knowing it's going to be okay. Yes. So yes. Uh, I don't think it's mutually exclusive. <laughs> yeah. What they call in romance jargon, the H-E-A, the happily ever after. Exactly, yes. <laughs> yes. If you, I know you say that you, you aren't at the start of what, just, what is already proven to be a, a very bright career, but if you... We're doing it over again, even at this stage. Is there anything that you would change? Mm, no, I'm, you know, to be honest, it's, it's all gone better than I could have ever imagined. So I suppose lots of things were done right. <laughs> I'm just really grateful and excited about how things are going. Certainly, I would have maybe talked to more experienced authors more about second book syndrome because. Writing the second book was really not easy. All the parameters had changed and I thought, wow, I'm really doing this wrong because it's so tough. And Mm. I was struggling with that for a long time until I reached out to a couple of wonderful authors who were, you know, very nice and supported me and just telling me, look, the second books are special beast. You have to... (laughs) have to push through that and and it helped hearing that from different authors you know yes. would have done that earlier before yeah. struggling on my own for a while yeah yeah so what is next for Evie the writer what are your plans now so over the next 12 months in terms of your writing you've got more of the League of Extraordinary Women coming along Yes, so I signed a so so there's a new contract with Berkeley for two more novels. At least one of them is going to be for the extraordinary uh, for the League of Extraordinary Women. So what I'm going to do in the next twelve months, hopefully, is write the fourth book. I'm already working on that. It's Katrina's story. I have to edit my third book, which is Harriet's uh, Hetty story. I have to tell people about the second book, which is A Rogue of One's Own, coming out September 1st. Yeah, I have to think about maybe what's going to go into the fifth book. Hopefully do a day job project in between there somewhere. So it's definitely going to be busy. So how far is, are you with Hattie? Have you got the first draft of Hattie done? Yes, it's it's all done. I'm expecting edits any moment now. And yeah, uh-huh. I really like that book, I have to say. Right now, I'm I'm still very enamored with that story, which is a new one, you know. Um, it's not it's not a given that you that you, that you like, um, like, I don't know, are, uh, at this stage, are, you know, in love with it, everything you've done there. So, so I'm quite happy about that right now. You found number three easier than number two. I think I was just a bit more experienced during the writing process. But I love, I mean, you, it's, it's very hard to have favorites. I love them both uh, in a way, you know, and they're, they're very, like the characters are all very close to my heart. It's going to be sad saying goodbye to them and when the fourth book is done. But the, just the process of writing the third book, despite the pandemic, was just a bit more, 
short, I was more, I was a bit more confident writing it. That's, that's what I'm saying. Like yes. it, it felt yes. less, it felt less like a, uh, challenge. <laughs> yes. <laughs> that's marvelous. Now, do you enjoy interacting with readers and where can they find you online? Uh, yes, sure. I, it's always uh, lovely to, to hear from readers and uh, to, to have a chat. And uh, I'm absolutely online. I'm on Instagram, on Twitter, on Facebook. And it's probably best to head to my website at uh, eviedunmore.com because that's where all the links are that take you directly to those platforms. Also, you can sign up for my newsletter there. And I'm sending out the first newsletter on August 25th. And I think this is probably going to air after August 25th. I'm not sure. Just a little, it'll, it'll only be a few days after August 25th, so that will fit in very nicely, yes. Yeah, it would fit in very nicely. And I, I did write a, a bonus chapter for bringing down the Duke, the wedding chapter between Annabelle and Sebastian, so if you sign up, you're going to... Oh, how cool. That sounds great. <laughs> we'll have all those links in the... We do full show notes for every podcast, a, a, a transcript of our conversation, and we include links in, in, in that transcripts so that people will be able to go online and find them mm-hmm. there forevermore. They don't have to rely on scribbling them down while they're listening to oh, us. Oh, that sounds brilliant. Look, Evie, it's been wonderful talking. It really has. I think you're doing a great job with your suffrage romance and we'll look forward to the coming books. Thank you so much for having me. Our pleasure. Thank you. Bye now. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to the Joys of Binge Reading podcast. You can find all the details and links for this episode at www.thejoysofbingereading.com. We'd love to hear your comments and suggestions for who you'd like us to interview next. And if you enjoyed the show, take a moment to subscribe on iTunes or a similar provider so you won't miss out on future guests. Thanks for joining us and happy reading. The Joys of Binge Reading podcast is put together with fantastic technical help from Dan Cotton and Abe Raffles. Dan is an experienced sound and video engineer who's ready and available to help you with your next project. Seek him out at dcaudioservices at gmail.com. That's D for Daniel, C for Charlie, audioservices at gmail.com or check our show notes. He's fast, he takes pride in getting it right and he's great to work with. Our voiceovers are done by Abe Raffles, another gem of sound and screen. Abe has 20 years of experience on both sides of the camera slash microphone. As a cameraman director and also as a voice artist and TV presenter. I think you'd agree that his voice is both light-hearted and warm. He is super easy to work with no matter what the job. You'll find him at Abe, A-B-E, at pointandshoot.co.nz. As I say, the full details in the show notes on the website. That's it for now. Thanks for listening. Hopefully see you next week. Bye.